Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we'll discuss spousal lifetime access trust for mass affluent $1 to $10 million taxpayers, featuring Martin M. Shankman, founder of Shankman Law based in New York. Today's show will cover spousal lifetime access trust or SLATs, which are one of the most common and popular planning tools for clients to use their exemption, especially before the exemption amount is cut in half in 2026. But slats are not only for clients worth 10 to $50 million plus seeking to use the exemption. The slat technique can be adapted to be valuable planning tool for the mass affluent client worth two to $10 million. This discussion will cover how to modify slat planning and capture benefits for this large group of clients. We'll focus on practical income tax, estate planning and asset protection planning benefits. Today, we're privileged to hear from Martin Shankman, who has the distinction of being my Tati and is also an attorney in private practice based in New York. Martin concentrates on estate and tax planning. He's widely quoted expert on tax matters and is a regular source of numerous financial and business publications and is the author of 40 books and more than, than approximately 1,500 articles. He's active in many charitable causes. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to Martin. Welcome, everyone, to the program. Um, Spousal Lifetime Access Trust is one of the hottest planning techniques for quite some time. And with the reduction of the exemption coming in 2026, at the end of 2025, where the exemption is going to be reduced by half, all advisors are going to be inundated with clients seeking to safeguard some of that exemption before it's reduced. And obviously, all this depends on what happens uh after the election and whether or not there's any change in the law but that being said given the popularity of slats and i'm not going to spend a great deal of time talking about a lot of the structural slat issues um the the step transaction doctrine which doesn't get enough attention in funding many slats uh the reciprocal trust doctrine which gets an awful lot of attention and a lot of misinformation we're going to focus on a different concept slats while a, ph a phenomenal tool when done well to safeguard exemption for wealthier clients, maybe in the 10 to $50 million and up range and up because slats can be the foundation stone, the building blocks for plans for billion dollar clients. These same concepts that are used in slats can be applied to much lower wealth clients. And I have found that many clients with lesser wealth can benefit significantly from using this technique. And that's what we're gonna talk about. Um, the objective is that, or the, the premise of the program is that many of you may serve clients who have uh, $5 million, $2 million, $10 million. Why even talk to them about this kind of planning? The concepts that work for $50 million estates can with intelligence, be applied very beneficially for clients with two and five and $10 million estates. 
So much more lower wealth level clients who are not doing this to preserve exemption can still benefit from the same planning technique. And if you are using this technique for wealthier clients, there's no reason not to adapt it. And we'll talk specifically about how to make it more cost efficient and affordable for more moderate wealth clients. Um, and, and it's almost like you can build a slat for a lower wealth client and build in the, the, the mechanisms so the slat can grow, if you will, and get more sophisticated as their wealth levels grow. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with some basic stuff, but I'm gonna get into what I hope is, is interesting and practical applications uh, of using this technique. And, and the focus is going to try to be on being practical. So what is a slat? I'm assuming everyone knows it, but let's just go through this uh, quickly for some of those that don't. It stands for Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. And, and by the way, it doesn't have to be for slots, spouses only. It can be non-married partners. It can be siblings. It can be somebody who's single and has no uh, close family with a close friend. It could be done for anybody, although the most common application is between spouses. And I'm gonna use husband and wife when I illustrate this uh, simply because it gets too complicated to use spouse one and spouse two. Um, it's an irrevocable trust. Um, irrevocable used to mean that you couldn't change it. Then irrevocable meant, well, it's kind of you can't change it, but you can decant it or merge it into a new trust. You can use a non-judicial modification agreement, NJMA, where under many state laws, the various parties involved uh, can agree to modify a trust, trust protector actions can change it and so on. There was a recent CCA, Chief uh, Counsel Advice uh, from the IRS at the end of last year that um, argued that when somebody, it was a decanting or non-judicial modification and it required the uh, consent or agreement and even if it's the non-consent, non-objection, of the beneficiaries, the IRS argued that there was a gift tax by the beneficiaries when a trust was modified to add back a tax reimbursement clause. We're not gonna spend a lot of time on that new ruling. If you're not familiar with it, it's worth reading. Um, for advisors, it's important to caution clients that if you later modify a trust based on the theories the IRS advocated in that ruling, which I don't believe are correct, and I think the concept of calculating and imputing a gift to beneficiaries who have no control over a trust for adding a tax reimbursement clause doesn't make any sense. Um, but the bottom line is when these irrevocable trusts are modified in the future, if they're modified, uh, you have to be mindful of that CCA and the risk of um, uh, the IRS arguing for a negative tax result. But a the concept of a slat, and I have them, I, I believe in it, I don't just talk about it. I have a uh, spousal lifetime access trust I created for my wife. She has a trust that she created for me. The trust benefit each other and all descendants. Um, and um, they're irrevocable trusts. And they were done in part for asset protection planning. They were done in part because it's impossible to predict what might happen with the tax laws. In 2012, we thought the exemption was going down to a million dollars, um, which didn't happen. And there's no saying whether or not the 2026 reduction will or won't happen. But keep in mind, and this is important, and it's important for clients too, and this is also why I think a lot about applying these techniques at lower wealth levels, there's no way to predict whether or not the kind of tax proposals that Senator Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren and, and Wyden and others have proposed, which could knock an exemption back to a million, two million, three million dollars. 
there's no way to predict. So the concept of a slat is if I create a trust for my wife and descendants and she creates a trust for me and descendants, we're still each a beneficiary of the other trust. So even if we put funds in there that we may later need access to, and key to this discussion and different from the discussion for much wealthier clients is clients in the mass affluent range, they're gonna need access to this. So you have to be cautious in constructing it, but so long as they have access, there's no reason they can't pursue the planning. So the, the idea for wealthy clients is you're putting money out of their estate, but preserving access by using the slap mechanism. For lower wealth clients, it may not be so much to put it out of the estate from an estate tax perspective, but from an asset protection or other planning perspective we're gonna talk about. So what I wanna to do to set the stage, and I, I know you, you're all probably familiar with this, I wanna explain very quickly the application of SLATs for your wealthier clients, which I'm assuming you all know, but then contrast that with how you would apply the SLAT techniques, the same techniques, the same concepts to a much lower wealth client. So again, for the, the wealthier client, not our target topic today, but I wanna use this to contrast what we're gonna talk about, Let's say a couple has $40 million. And in 2026, the exemptions are cut in half. Here I, I'd said 6 million, but I wrote that slide probably before inflation got so high, it's gonna be over 7 million. Again, assuming no changes, which we don't know. And that's why planning is important. The couple had done nothing. Their $40 million estate would be reduced by their exemptions, 6 million each, 7 million each, whatever it is in 2026 or later. And then the balance would be taxed at 40%, leaving a very substantial estate tax. Now, if they created slats and they put money into them and the exemption now is $13,610,000. So a couple could put away, what, 27 and change million. It's an awful lot of money. And for many couples, they can't afford that. You may just use one exemption to preserve it. But by putting money into these slats, they can still have access within reason and with certain limitations, which we'll briefly talk about, but it's now growing out of their estate. So using these examples, there can be a very substantial tax saving for a couple worth $40 million acting before 2026. So the key question is how can this powerful planning technique of slats be applied and used for clients with a, a net worth in one to $10 million. Too many advisors and clients ignore all of this because gee, I'm not gonna pay an estate tax. That doesn't mean planning is not uh, valuable for them. So let's, let's go on. So how do, I, how do we adapt the SLAT technique? Husband creates a trust for wife and descendants. Wife creates a trust for husband and sons. And again, the trusts obviously have to be differentiated to avoid the reciprocal trust doctrine, regardless of wealth level. And that can be done with different powers of appointments, different uh, annual demand powers, crummy powers, a five and five power in one trust, not the other trust, different trustees, different jurisdictions. Although you probably won't do that with the lower wealth clients, uh, different distribution provisions. One spouse may be, excuse me, one spouse may be limited to a HEM standard, health education maintenance support. Another spouse may have uh, um, an unlimited discretionary distribution standard with uh, an independent trustee and so on. So lots of ways to differentiate that. And I'm sure you've all heard lots of webinars on um, the reciprocal trust doctrine and how to address it. 
Um, if you haven't and you want information, I can give Jonathan uh, an article to give you on the reciprocal trust doctrine. Just let Jonathan know and I'll send him something he can distribute. So let's take an example now of trying to adapt this planning technique for moderate wealth clients. And I made up an example, we'll just go through it. Jane and John Smith, they're both physicians. They're worried about malpractice claims. It's not only about preserving exemption. These, this couple, both as doctors, are very concerned about malpractice claims. It's very common. And this is not just physicians that are worried about malpractice claims. Everyone on this call needs to be worried about malpractice claims. The, the malpractice environment for lawyers, accountants, for the estate planning subspecialty in particular is, is, is gotten dramatically worse over the years. The statistics prove that out. The, the, the big profile, high profile cases prove it out. Lots of clients need asset protection. They're in their early 40s. That to me means they're going to need access to this money because they don't know what the future is going to bring. They have a couple of young children and they have several million dollars in non-retirement savings that they've accumulated. You can't put retirement savings, as you all know, into slats or any kind of, of these planning vehicles. Um, they're very concerned about malpractice risk. They're confident their estate will grow in the coming decades as their professional careers grow mature. Um, their high earning, highest earning years are way, way ahead of them yet. They don't have adequate life insurance, common with lots of clients. They don't have adequate life insurance uh, to protect themselves or their children. And the term life insurance they have, as with most younger clients, is just owned personally because no one told them it should be in a trust. They have really no concerns about estate tax, but they do understand that the laws can change every time there's a change of uh, uh, administration in Washington. And they're not adverse to doing tax planning, although it's certainly not a motivator. Jane's mother is in her 90s and not doing so well, and they help her out financially. Very, very common. Tens of millions of uh, children help out their aging parents. That's a wonderful thing for children to do, help out their aging parents financially. So here's, here's what we could do with this couple. Let's say we create two non-reciprocal spousal lifetime access trusts. Jane creates one for John. John creates one for Jane. And I rattled off a couple of minutes ago some of the different con concepts you can integrate differently in one trust, not the other, so that you make them different for purposes of the reciprocal trust doctrine. In this instance, you can't really differentiate the trusts based on assets because it's not like one has a very valuable closely held business and the other has um, marketable securities. You may be able to, if the client, let's say for simplicity's sake, the client has a 50-50 asset allocation, half in bonds, half in stocks, just simplistic. it. Maybe what they do is they divide those assets so that husband owns the bonds, wife owns the stocks, and they're putting different assets into the trust. I'm not sure how much that'll help, but it can't hurt if you can do it. If one of them has, if they have a, a rental property, maybe one of them will use that. Keep in mind, and I'm not going to focus on it, but I said it earlier, the step transaction doctrine, which I'll explain, is an issue for all irrevocable trust and slap planning. Step transaction is where the IRS collapses several steps. I think it was 2020, late 20, in December 2020, the Smoldino case was a court case where the taxpayer got trounced on the step transaction doctrine. You can't take assets and retitle them from one spouse to the other on Monday. And then on Tuesday have, let's say, the husband put the assets that were just retitled to his name from the wife 
into a trust for wife and descendants. There should be at least six months, ideally. Uh, some say, you know, in a pinch, 30 days. Uh, ideally, there should be actions by the spouse who gets the assets to show that they have um, dominion and control over them, changing the asset allocation, uh, using some of the money for personal expenses. You got to be mindful of that. But let's let's leave that and go on. So under your guidance, John and Jane each create uh, two non-reciprocal spousal lifetime access trusts. Now, my preference for slats for wealthier clients, and I encourage you to think about it, but it's not our topic today, is to put them always in trust-friendly jurisdictions. Uh, there's now, I believe, 20 states that permit um, domestic asset protection trusts and have laws favorable to self-settled trusts. That's important because if under the reciprocal trust doctrine, they uncross the slats, that's what the reciprocal trust doctrine, if successfully used, would do. An uncrossed slat means husband created the trust that he's the beneficiary of. If you're in a, a jurisdiction like Alaska, Nevada, South Dakota, Delaware, any of the DAP jurisdictions, Michigan, Ohio, uh, New Hampshire, et cetera, you could now have a self-settled trust. So using a DAP jurisdiction can be a backstop to prevent a successful um, uh, IRS attack or creditor attack on the reciprocal trust doctrine. But for moderate wealth clients, you're going to probably create them in their home state, New York. Not ideal by any stretch, but from a practical perspective, uh, the fees that are going to be charged by an administrative trustee in one of the better jurisdictions may be an impediment for a lower wealth client. Maybe not. So you should ask the client the question. And the maybe not is because if they're really concerned about asset protection, why not start the trust in a better jurisdiction and avoid that link back to the home state? Because there's significant worries over malpractice risks in the next few years as their incomes grow, Jane's trust will be moved to Nevada and John's to Alaska. So you can start them in New York, and as the client's wealth grows and income grows, and they're more tolerant of the fee, three to five grand, three to 10 grand, depending on which trust company, which jurisdiction, but you can get uh, an administrative trustee in one of the favorable states for as little as three, three to five grand a year. Well, once their income and wealth goes, you can have a trust protector just move Citus, change trustees to a better jurisdiction. They name their uncle as trust protector and give him the power to move each trust to a new state, change governing law, and change new trustees. So all it takes is a trust protector with those very commonly given powers to be able to enhance the level of protection the SLAT offers. So you could start in New York or whatever the client or your home, the client's home state is initially and then move it if the client is comfortable at their wealth and income level start in a better jurisdiction since the primary goal of the smiths is to have sufficient assets in retirement they're building into the you want to build into the trust many ways where they can access money so you could have a loan provision you could have a tax reimbursement clause you can have the ability to add charitable beneficiaries well how does adding charitable beneficiaries uh, uh, give them personal benefit because let's assume most clients give something to charity. If the trust pays it instead of them paying it, that's in effect an indirect benefit. They can't have the trust pay a pledge they made, but the trust can make a donation if charities are built in and you want to build them in from the beginning. Otherwise, when the trust is ever turned into a non-grantor trust, you won't get a deduction because you'll violate the governing instrument rules. Now, you want to go further than just the loan and tax reimbursement and husband's beneficiary wife, wife of husband, et cetera. You could build in a hybrid DAP provision and say the husband's trust. Hybrid 
domestic asset protection trust provision. What that is, is that you give somebody in a non-fiduciary capacity the power to add back beneficiaries, which can include the husband. Some people like to say that they give a class of beneficiaries, like the descendants of the husband's grandparents, so that it's a whole class of people. They can choose somebody to add back, but the husband's included in the class. Some think that's safer. I'm not sure because it's obvious why that's being done, but you may make that. So in the husband's trust, we're going to give an old college friend the ability to add husband back as a beneficiary. Because we want to keep these trusts different for purposes of the reciprocal trust doctrine, because it's a lower wealth client that likely is going to have to access the money, then what you may want to do is give the wife a different power to give her access. And for that, maybe the wife's trust has a SPAT provision, special power of appointment trust. We give somebody, and I'd want that somebody ideally to be not the same as somebody who has the, the DAP, hybrid DAP power to add the husband back, give a different person, say the, the wife's college roommate, the ability in a non-fiduciary capacity to tell the trustee, give wife X dollars. It's a limited power of appointment, which we've used in planning forever. And it's exercisable where the person can appoint. And again, you can make it a class of beneficiary, descendants of the wife's grandmother. You could have any of those descendants. This person in a non-fiduciary capacity could direct the appointment of income. What's different about a SPAT is the wife is never a beneficiary, can't be a beneficiary of the trust in contrast to the DAP provision in the husband's trust. But now in each trust, in addition to the typical powers of being a beneficiary, uh, being able to make a loan, tax reimbursement, give one spouse, not the other, a five and five power where they can withdraw up to 5% of the principal, give one a SPAT provision, give one a hybrid DAP provision. I really prefer that if you're going to give a SPAT and a hybrid DAP, you're in the trust-friendly DAP type jurisdictions, one of those 20 states. And, and I think Wisconsin's going to join, I heard from a colleague, so maybe 21, I think, soon. Um, the ability to get those access points it's just safer. If you use the SPAT and hybrid DAPT, maybe they can't be activated unless and until the trust is moved by the trust protector to one of those better jurisdictions. So now we've created a trust. It's arguably out of their estate and unreachable by their creditors. And that trust gives them incredible access to it because they're at a much lower wealth strata. So this trust is already making a lot of sense from an asset protection perspective. It's a great way to save. Money's protected, um, um, arguably. And we've not talked about estate taxes being a significant motivator. Let's go on. Jane's mom, I mentioned, was in her 90s, not doing well, and they've been helping her. Not an uncommon thing with lots of younger clients helping an older parent. We give Jane's mother a general power of appointment over each trust. On her passing, those assets are included in her estate, and we'll get a step up in basis. So all of the appreciation that Jane and John have realized in the years that they've been investing with Jonathan Shankman, right? Because that's who you want to hire for your investments. All that appreciation from a tax perspective has disappeared because you get a step up in basis when Jane's mom dies because of the power of appointment. So think of the income tax planning benefits that that can afford. 
merely by giving Jane's mother a general power of appointment, and you can circumscribe it. It can be limited up to no more than including assets up to her exemption amount. But at this wealth strata, it's less of a worry of exceeding the exemption than for the wealthier clients who try to use that planning tool. You could say it has to be exercised with the consent of uh, Jane's lawyer so that uh, the mother can't just arbitrarily do it and name some other family member. But for the right circumstances, that power of appointment can eliminate all the capital gains on Jane and John's portfolio. That's big. That's a great income tax benefit on top of the asset protection. Sorry about that. Um, you can have financial planning forecast done to show them what the numbers look like. You can have an insurance and you should have an insurance analysis done to support the plan. If Jane dies prematurely and John loses some of his access to the funds in Jane's trust, having life insurance on Jane and her trust to supplement what John can get can help make them whole. So insurance, especially at a younger age like this that we're illustrating at the lower wealth, definitely needs to be looked at. I like to name a separate insurance trustee in all the slats that I do. I've done that for many years. Um, this way, if the client wants to be an investment trustee or investment advisor because they have private equity, whether it's a rental house or startup company or whatever that they put in there, um, you want the, the a separate insurance trustee so you don't have a code section 2042 estate inclusion issue with um, the client that's the insured being a trustee. Um, I just like that independent. So you can easily build in separate insurance provisions. Now, in the bottom of, of, of the slide 11, I just indicate, say, Jane puts in a half a million, John puts in 650. And you want some financial modeling to show, and they're probably living off their income. So you, the financial modeling for many clients we use to sh demonstrate that they still have adequate resources to live on. Here, that may be a, a, a really simple step because they're living on less, hopefully, than what they're earning because they're saving and adding to retirement savings and savings for college and so on and so forth. So you can start with small dollar gifts of the amounts here, and it's a great asset protection tool. And in each year in the future, they can make another gift. So now Jane and John have a valuable asset protection plan that will grow with them as their wealth grows, and you can enhance it through decanting, Keep in mind the recent CCA, moving it to a better jurisdiction if you start in their home state to keep the cost cheaper. A lot of times for the lower wealth clients, I'll name a family member. I don't like naming spouses, although some lawyers do that all the time. I just prefer an independent trustee, a sibling, a cousin, close friend, whatever. But you can start in the home state and when they their wealth affords it, move it to the better jurisdiction and name the institution. If they're comfortable doing it from the get-go, I prefer to do that. They need insurance trusts. Well, you don't need to add, let me finish the thought before you yeah. give the code. You don't need to have a separate life insurance trust. You build in all the insurance provisions in the slat. So a younger couple often will go out and get insurance trusts. This is a better approach. It's just more sophisticated, more robust, has more access and better asset protection planning. So you're not even giving them an extra trust. You're just giving them a better trust. Um, they were gonna set up 529 plants. They may not have to do it because the kids are beneficiaries of the trust. They can grow the money out of their estate safe and pay for college out of these trusts because the kids are beneficiaries. You may still want the 529 plan because of the income tax advantages, but again, if they wanna not do that, they don't have to. The income tax planning on Jane's mom's passing of the step up in basis, another great benefit. So they got asset protection, they got an insurance trust, 
They got um, uh, estate tax savings if the laws ever change. They have great access, so it becomes like a retirement plan. This is a really beneficial plan for this couple if it can be done cost effectively. Jonathan? Uh, I'm just going to interject here briefly with the code for accounts and attorneys who are taking this program for credit. Please write this down. The code is A10, again, A as in Apple, the number one and the number zero. One final time, A10. Okay. What are slat why slats are remain the estate planning tool of choice for wealthy clients? They're going to remain the hot ticket because with what's happening in 2026, many, many moderate wealth and wealthy clients want to safeguard their exemption. We didn't really talk about GST planning, but all these trusts should be GST exempt. Gift tax returns should be filed confirming that they're all GST trusts. They should be drafted as GST trusts. GST trust is a defined term under the GST regs um, that we're not going to get into, but the bottom line is that would make the automatic allocation rules apply and automatically allocate GST exemption. On the gift tax return, and I see them done wrong far more than wrong, often than I see them done right, it's not complicated. We believe this is a GST exempt trust. It and allocation is fully allocated, GST exemption is fully allocated so that the inclusion ratio is zero. If for any reason this is not deemed to be a GST trust, we hereby allocate uh, as much GST exemption as necessary to make this um, a fully exempt zero inclusion trust. Even for the moderate wealth clients do that. You don't know that their wealth may not grow. We don't know that the exemption may not be reduced. You don't want an ambiguity. It really is simple to do and not a big deal. If after the fact it wasn't done right, it is a big deal to try to fix it. Slats are the tool of choice for wealthy married couples and many single people who do slats with siblings and others because each spouse can contribute assets to the trust. They can remove assets from their taxable estate, secure the temporary or bonus exemption. Keep in mind on that point, sometimes advisors even misunderstand it, but clients almost always misunderstand it. If you have a couple with $40 million and one spouse puts in six million and the other spouse puts in six million and they create two non-reciprocal slats, they haven't safeguarded a nickel of exemption because when the exemption is reduced to seven million, they now each have one million left. If instead one spouse put in 12 million, the other put in nothing, or maybe you know 50 grand to, to fund like a life insurance trust that was structured as a more robust slat, they've now safeguarded 12 million. If the exemption drops to seven, they've safeguarded five million they would have lost and the other spouse still has her seven million of exemption. So keep, keep, keep that in mind because for a lot of moderate wealth, moderate relative to the huge exemptions, you're better off with just one spouse using exemption. Each spouse is a beneficiary of the other trust so they can have access to the assets. We've talked about loan provisions. A loan provision is where somebody in a non-fiduciary capacity has to be a non should be a non-fiduciary capacity. It's given a power to loan the settlor, let's say the husband for his trust, money out of the trust. That way, if wife dies and he loses indirect access to the trust through the wife as a beneficiary, this person in non-fiduciary capacity um, could loan him money. So loan provisions are important. Tax reimbursement is critical. And again, based on that CCA that I told you about a few minutes ago, um, you got to have that in from inception. Otherwise, the IRS may give you a hard time adding it. But taxes is a grant or trust. All these most let me correct myself. Most of these slats are structured as grantor trust. 
In some instances, we structure them as non-grantor trust, which is a little sticky to do, but it can be done. Uh, you have a non-adverse party approved distributions to the spouse. The reason that you would structure it as a non-grantor trust is to avoid state income tax if you live in a high state tax state like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut. On the other hand, the reason the vast majority are done as grantor trusts is you don't want income tax issues when you're dealing with the trust, especially if there's insurance there or you want to swap assets for a basis, step up, and so on. Um, and if this is done well, and I'm going to give you a comment or two here, it should protect the assets from creditors. In the prior example where we did John and Jane, and they're both physicians, but honestly, for any client, and this is important to protect you as a, a practitioner, I like to get the financial advisor to review insurance coverage to a financial projection because it shows they have adequate resources outside of the trust. And often if there's an issue, insurance can fill that gap, especially for younger couples or couples putting in a large swath of their wealth. I like to have everybody sign a solvency affidavit that does any large trust transfer. Why? Because it's showing that they're not aware of any claims. So if somehow a claim surfaces, they signed something under the penalties of perjury before the transfer confirming that they weren't aware of any claims and that they had adequate resources to meet their lifestyle expenses and so on and so forth in a solvency affidavit. It also protects you as a practitioner because if the client later has misgivings or had a claim that they didn't tell you about, you didn't participate in defrauding that creditor. So that's something worth doing. So if we're gonna try to get this plan to protect the um, couple, from uh, claimants, you want to get some financial backup. I always try to get a signed balance sheet because if you have a balance sheet, it shows that they still have adequate resources and so on. That's a simplistic slap pitch, but it's not the full story or the correct plan. There's lots of details that need to really go into um, the uh, properly done slap. So let's talk about, in the context of the lower wealth client, estate tax uncertainty and growth of the estate. One of the issues that is often not looked at and why financial forecasts can really be helpful, how high is their estate going to grow? If somebody earns 6% compounded for the next 30 years, whatever they're having and whatever they're adding in savings can really grow dramatically. Many clients only look at their current, like a snapshot of their balance sheet. They're not looking at what their estate may grow to. So it's really vital to forecast what their estate could grow to if they don't feel they need to do planning. Many clients who are very moderate in wealth today may well have taxable estates in the future. Why not start planning now? So the certainly can be something that could be beneficial. I mentioned very briefly that some but not most slats are done as non-grantor trusts. That's worth thinking about. A non-grantor trust is also called a complex trust. A non-grantor trust, generally speaking, but I'm going to modify this in a second, pays its own income tax. In contrast to a grantor trust, where if you have a swap power or a loan provision that makes it a, a grantor trust as to you, the settlor, you report the income of the trust on your personal return. For wealthy clients, having a grant or trust has been a huge part of planning for many decades because of the tax burn. If you set up a trust that's grantors to you and you pay the income tax on all the income the trust earns, it helps the trust compound and grow out of your estate even faster. And when the IRS ruled that that's not deemed an additional gift to the trust, 
the floodgates opened and that became the default approach to planning. But if somebody's in a high tax state, they can structure the trust as a non-grantor trust and avoid state income tax. So you could set up, if you have a client in New York, a trust in Nevada, make it a non-grantor trust and then avoid any New York income tax. One of the little nuances there, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and a couple other states have these, these really aggressive, if that's the right word, rules, but strong rules that if you have a, a, a dollar of source income, all the income of the trust is tainted. One of the ways, by the way, and I don't think this is in the slides that you can address that, that little peppercorn of income that could taint the trust, give somebody a section 678 power to pull out all New York source income. So one of the kids that let's say is an adult, have them have the power to pull out all New York source income. So if somehow there's like a, a, a partnership fund or a, a, some kind of investment fund that has a modest amount of, of New York source income, you don't get tagged. The client doesn't get tagged with the whole trust being taxed in New York. One of the problems of using the non-grantor trust approach is it makes access harder. I had said it earlier, what you need, if the spouse is going to be a beneficiary of a trust, that automatically makes it a grantor trust. If you're trying to do a non-grantor trust to save state income tax in this planning, the spouse can only get a distribution if approved by an adverse party. Who's an adverse party? Well, one of the kids that's a remainder beneficiary or a current beneficiary is an adverse party because every dollar given to mom is a dollar less the kid gets. That gets a little more complicated. What technically is an adverse party? What if the children are all minors? Well, there have been rulings that have suggested in the ING, intentionally non-grantor trust area, and the IRS doesn't issue rulings in that area anymore, that um, uh, you can have somebody act on behalf of the child. You can name, say, a grandparent to be the uh, person to act on behalf of the child until they're no longer a minor. But you start to get a little gray in the area there of whether or not that will suffice to be a non-grantor trust. The real issue with a non-grantor trust and why I have not used it for the wealth strata that we're talking about here is access is harder. If my spouse can only, my wife can only get distributions if one of the kids approves it, it makes it harder to get her money. And a lot of clients are uncomfortable with that, especially at a more moderate wealth level where they feel they may need access. I said a minute ago, a loan power will taint a trust or characterize a trust as grantor. So if I set up a, a slat for my wife and I have the power to borrow, to, I give somebody uh, the power to loan me money, that power will taint it as a grantor trust. But the loan power is a very powerful way to be able to get access to the trust, the power to add beneficiaries, like the hybrid DAP technique we talked about, that will taint it as a grantor trust. So I put in the slide deck and wanted to talk about non-grantor trust because maybe clients at the higher wealth levels, uh, and, and that's all relative, right, uh, are more concerned with saving current state income tax, but they're going to have to forgo some very important access points to that trust. And here's something I've never said in a lecture before because I just thought of it and it's only just happened. The CCA the IRS issued at the end of, of um, uh, 2023 that said if you add a tax reimbursement clause, you, you, you have an adverse tax consequence. That same construct, and they intentionally did this just to put a chilling effect on, on the planning we do. That same construct may apply if you add a loan provision, if you added um, uh, uh, any kind of access. 
So, so be mindful of that. So the non-grantor trust approach, it's good to know about, it's good to mention to clients, but I think at this wealth level, uh, the income tax benefit is not gonna be uh, as valuable. Next benefit to talk about. We've talked about this several times, but I'm just trying to go through all the benefits. Asset protection is important. Everybody in the, the litigious society we live in is at risk. All of you on this call are for, at risk. And even if you think the slats that you do for your wealthier clients aren't necessary for you, they are. Because putting as much of your non-retirement, non-qualified plan assets uh, into a trust that you can to protect it from claimants and creditors is just simply prudent to do. And the older you get in your career, the closer you get to retirement, the more risk adverse you probably should feel because you don't have the decades to rebuild that wealth if it's ever lost. And I think an awful lot of clients want asset protection. And if you talk to them about it, they are aware of it because they buy liability, you know, umbrella, uh, excess personal liability coverage. They use LLCs when they have a business or a rental property. They understand the need for asset protection. And clients in the two to 10 million wealth strata, the one to 10, whatever range it is, the lower wealth clients, they need asset protection. They just can't afford to give it away. But using creative non-reciprocal spousal lifetime access trust with loan provisions, tax reimbursement provisions, a five and five power, again, it's got to be different between the various trusts, is an excellent way to help them protect assets, non-retirement assets, and yet still have access. Protecting aging and infirm clients. I wouldn't use, you don't need an irrevocable trust to do it, but a trust can help. How so? Elder financial abuse is epidemic in our country. And it's not just elder, it really bothers me that that's the phrase used because there's many people at younger ages that have uh, cognitive issues, disabilities, challenges, and there are vultures out there, armies of them that do anything to take advantage of anybody who has a weakness. Um, identity theft is just rampant. Um, so how does how does this slap plan help? You're putting, I, I always get separate tax ID numbers, even for grantor trust. So if you're putting assets in a different tax ID number, I think it makes it harder for the perpetrators out there, the bad actors, to pierce and get at it because it's not a social that's so used. Who's going to even have access other than maybe the accountant and the wealth advisor to know what that tax ID number is? It's not spread around like a social security number. If you have in the slat, you could build in a trust protector, which you should have for flexibility, but the trust protector can also provide monitoring by making sure that things are done right with the trust. It's somebody to demand an accounting or change the trustee if somebody is taking advantage of the client. So there's also that the, the you can integrate into this planning for aging clients. I said it in the context of life insurance, but I'm going to say it in a broader way now. Let me see if I, no, I don't have another slide, so I'll say it here. If many of these younger clients may go out and buy a, you know, millions of dollars of term life insurance, and it may be very inexpensive at the young age. The Jane and John in the example I gave were in their 40s. They were in their 40s, and um, they bought life insurance. They needed life insurance. Many advisors tell them you need an insurance trust. You can use, as I said earlier, these robust slats just integrate insurance trustee and insurance provisions in them. It's not a big deal to do. It's very easy to do. And if you do that, um, you don't need separate insurance trusts. People will set up asset protection trusts, dynasty trusts, trust for kids, trust for grandkids. You can do all of that in the same slat. You just have a, a sprinkle power, a pot trust for all the named beneficiaries. 
So the concept of the slat that we've talked about gives you the ability to create a single trust to address many, uh, to address many goals and objectives. So it's easier for the client and less costly because it's one robust trust. Now, and that concept is, is segues into the next topic. What do you do different in planning or modifying planning for the moderate wealth client to make this slap planning that we usually do for much wealthier clients make sense for the lower wealth client? You wanna ta tailor the trust so that it's more adaptable. Cost is clearly a factor. If you use document generation software to generate your trusts, you can create these trusts in fairly quick order for a fairly reasonable fee. The trusts that we do today in my office are for, for half the cost that it took in 2012 to do a trust because of the automation that we use. Even our billing rates are probably double what they were, maybe more than in 2012, and yet we can do it for half the cost. But document generation is really something to do. I would, and I've talked about this, so I don't need to belabor it, but I generally will put these trusts in the home state to start unless the client's really comfortable spending the, and you can get it for, again, as little as $3,000, a administrative trustee in Nevada or Alaska or something like that. So I'll start in the home state if they don't want to spend that money. A few do, I'd say most don't. So start in the home state, use document generation, make the planning more efficient, get the financial planning done. I, my default for all trusts that I do in my office, I want to start with an institutional trustee, whether it's an administrative trustee for a flat fee or a full-blown institutional trustee, depending on the circumstances. I like using institutional trustees. The IRS and creditors can't argue that you had an implied agreement with an institution. If it's your brother, they can argue you had an implied agreement and he was going to give you money whenever you wanted it. It's much safer to survive an attack by the IRS or creditors. The Levine case, which a year or two ago was a, a, a hot split dollar um, life insurance case, the court noted in a very strong positive way that the client used South Dakota Trust Company as an independent institutional trustee. I like that. Um, add insurance provision so it's flexible so they don't need another trust. Consider whether you should do one trust instead of two. With the asset protection motives, two may be better for these lower wealth clients because it's not about safeguarding exemption. It's more about asset protection and protecting wealth. A common situation I see for lower wealth clients, moderate wealth clients that we're talking about here, mass affluent clients, I'll set up a more robust slat for one and a fairly simple life insurance trust for the other to address that premature death risk and have, say, insurance on the wife and her insurance trust. Husband puts, you know, whatever he can into his slat. But that way, if wife dies prematurely and husband loses access to the slat, there's insurance for him. Um, again, you can mix and match and build this based on the circumstances. Consider the non-estate non tax benefits. The step up in basis using a general power of appointment with an elderly family member, that is an incredible value for a lower wealth client uh, as well as the wealthy client. And again, in some circumstances, but I find it less so for the, the less wealthy client, a non-grantor trust may provide current state income tax savings. And again, the reason I, I find it less so is because of the concerns about access being harder to preserve. So there's some general slap planning uh, applicable to all clients. I kind of said in the beginning, we may not get to all of this, but uh, we have a couple minutes and we'll go through some of it. To be respected, 
the plan has to be economically viable. First of all, it has to be administered properly. A really large number of clients never come back to their estate planning attorneys or accountants, um, and they don't really get professional help administering plans. Every time I think I've seen you know, the most ridiculous or the worst way a client could undermine a plan, you know, I see something worse than that come back yet again. Clients need to be educated by all their advisors. You got to talk to your planning team. Do it once a year. It doesn't take a lot. You can have a Zoom meeting. Once you've gone through the first annual review meeting and you got a checklist for a couple of these trusts, it could be a half an hour Zoom meeting just to keep things on track. Clients don't understand things that to advisors are obvious and intuitive and they will do it wrong. And several years of things being done wrong, it becomes a costly mess to clean up. It's a bad paper trail. You can't undo it. You can try to fix it the best you can, but at some point, how many footfalls do you need before it becomes a problem? The economics must make sense. Like I said, have a financial forecast done. Use life insurance to address issues like premature risk. Make sure for these, if they're younger clients, they have disability insurance coverage. If one of them doesn't have adequate disability coverage and uh, becomes incapacitated and loses their income, now what? You gotta make sure the insurance planning is done as well. You don't, having that kind of background, and that's why I said to you, I would always do a solvency affidavit. It's a page and a half, two page document that makes statements like I have adequate resources. I understand what the trust is. I'm not defrauding creditors. I don't owe child support, et cetera, et cetera. Get that signed too. It all helps. All of these steps help deflect that there was an implied agreement that the trustee was going to assuredly give money back to the client. Um, the assumptions used in the forecast are important. This, this point alone is worth a whole lecture, but I'm going to do it in a minute. So forgive me, but we don't have enough time, but it's just, I want to present a different thought. Let's say you go to your financial advisor, which should be Jonathan, and your target goal for your financial forecast is you want an 80% likelihood of not running out of money by age 95. Let's say you feel comfortable that's reasonable. When you're doing a forecast to see if a slap makes sense, you don't need to use the same assumptions the client wants to make sure they don't run out of money. What if you used a 50% likelihood of not running out of money by life expectancy? That says that the plan has got, you know, on this, uh, the, the, um, the curve, it's at the topmost point of the, uh, the, the curve, right? 50% um, likelihood of succeeding. Isn't that reasonable to deflect a challenge by a creditor or the IRS that you gave away too much and you made yourself insolvent. You weren't insolvent. You had a 50% likelihood of the plan succeeding to life expectancy. So you can use lower assumptions in the planning to justify the slat. The same client may then say, redo these numbers. I want an 80% likelihood of not running out of money by age 95, even though you used 50% by whatever life expectancy was. But the, all that analysis can help support this deflected implied agreement and help the client really understand better what's going on. The advisor's role in backstopping slap planning is critical at every wealth level. Your proactive involvement, whatever role you're in, accountant, attorney, doesn't matter, will help the client realize those goals. Um, make sure you give consideration to the reciprocal trust doctrine. If 
wife is doing just an insurance trust or husband's just doing an insurance trust and the other spouse is doing a, a more robust slat and putting lots of money in it and the insurance trust is just getting funded with annual gifts. I'm not too worried about the reciprocal trust doctrine, but I would nevertheless differentiate them. I like having different trustees. I don't like having spouses as trustees. That being said, there's a lot of very smart practitioners that name the other spouse on these trusts. I don't love it, but I'm not saying it's wrong. To the extent you can create them at different times. That's why it's really important that people start planning now and not November, 2025, right? In November, 2025, if a couple wants non-reciprocal slats, you're going to do them immediately because you don't have any choice. You could do a trust in 2024, do the other one 12 months later. The only case, by the way, that I'm aware of that talked about differentiating slats by time was 18 months. So I, I've heard all sorts of comments, but again, any difference is better. Different assets, different trustees, we've talked about that. Different terms, we've talked about that. Um, I, I mentioned, and it doesn't get enough attention, the step transaction doctrine. All assets, let's say, are in joint name. You want to divide them. I would then have husband and wife each get a different investment allocation, investment policy statement, invest differently, change it up, show dominion, spend some of the money, let time go by. I would say ideally a year, if possible, six months. If you can't, at least 30 days. Um, the longer, the better. There's no bright and fast rule. And the more control that each spouse exerts over those assets after they've been retitled, the more that it's realistic. So let's say there's a private LLC, family-owned LLC. Pay out a distribution. Amend and restate the operating agreement. Don't just do an assignment. Do everything you can to show independence. As the accountants, make sure there's a K-1 issue to reflect who owns what when. In the Smaldino case, they didn't even issue the wife a K-1 when the husband gave her interest and then she gave him to a trust. The K-1s didn't support, the tax filings didn't support that she ever had an ownership interest. So do what you can to address the step transaction issue. Every client should be informed to start planning today, whatever their goals are, because again, time is their friend. The more time you have to differentiate steps, to think through and discuss the planning, to do proper forecasts, that's all fine. If you remember back to 2012, when clients showed up in even August of 2012, every advisor was just absolutely swamped with people trying to desperately plan before the exemption went from 5 million inflation adjusted to 1 million. Didn't happen, but we were all swamped. We didn't have time to do the kind of planning I'm talking about. Now, there was just no time. You just get it done. So encourage clients to start. The more time they have, they can do more of the things that I just talked about to break the step transaction issue. Here's another point that I never hear talked about. I hear people go on, wax on about the reciprocal trust doctrine. And be careful, a lot of the people pontificating on this and writing articles on this, they say a lot of things that are not necessarily factually correct, just their view. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they should say, I think, or I like to, not this is what you have to do, or this is what the law is. But, but here's a really important point. And I now have this in a standard memo that goes to every client that does these slat type trusts. If you are doing a slat, and I say give one spouse a five and five power, don't give it to the other. Five and five power is the power to withdraw the greater of $5,000 or 5% of trust principal. And the reason that figure and those percent that percentage is used 
is because that's the amount the tax laws permit you to withdraw without it becoming a general power of appointment. If you had $6,000 or 5.1%, it would be a general power. The whole trust would be included in your estate. But if it's just five thousand, the greater of $5,000 or 5%, you can do that. You will have 5% of the trust included in your estate, but not more. So it's a great way to give access. It's a great way to differentiate the trust. But there's real economics to that. If the wife has the ability to withdraw 5% of the trust assets and there's $10 million, that's $500,000 she can withdraw. If it's $1 million, it's $50,000. If she can withdraw $50,000 and the husband can't withdraw anything and you have two $1 million slats, year after year, that's a significant difference. What if there's a divorce? What if it's a blended family? Those powers that people willy-nilly throw in because they want to make the trust different, and I'm not saying that's wrong to do, make sure the clients understand there's real, actual economic and legal implications for those powers. Lots of times they don't. Be sure to consider income tax planning. It's not just estate tax and asset protection planning. Basis step up, really important. Giving a general power of appointment is an incredibly valuable planning tool. Uh, the swap power means I can swap it back to my estate. So when I die, I get a step up. There's a step up in basis. But if you have an elderly relative you can give it to and they die in the next year or two, you got a basis step up while the clients are still alive. What a phenomenal tool. Combine it with life insurance. We've talked about that. Put in a swap power so you can do what I just said to get a basis step up for the client's death, which may be decades and decades for a younger couple, especially after a parent dies. What good is a swap power if you don't monitor it? That's why you need an annual review meeting. Hey, Jonathan, how much is their, their, their you know, stock portfolio appreciated? Do we want to swap it back? They're in their 80s already. You've got to ask those questions. If the clients don't come back for periodic reviews, we can't help them do that. Tax reimbursement clause. Um, oh, here's the CCA I mentioned. I couldn't remember the number, but it's here. You got to read this. It's just put out by the IRS, I think, to have a chilling effect on the kind of planning that we're doing because it's such a harsh, ridiculous, in my view, result. Okay. Access is key. We only have a minute or two left. We've talked about this, but let me just go through it. And there's more in the slide deck that I know Jonathan is distributing. And if you want some more materials on this, I can give Jonathan some articles that he can send all of you as well. Um, do they have sufficient assets in their outside of the trust to be comfortable? What kind of access do you have to give? Identify gaps. Like I said, for a young couple, if they don't have adequate disability insurance and they put like in the example I gave with John and Jane, 650 and 500 grand million and change into a trust and they don't have disability coverage, the restrictions the trust creates with no disability and somebody coverage and somebody gets sick could be a problem. Make sure that's all addressed. The insurance plan backstops the slap plan. Who are they naming as beneficiaries? Keep in mind for future income tax planning, you want a broad class of beneficiaries. You want the ability to add charitable beneficiaries. It can make income tax planning if grant or trust status is turned off, and certainly after the death of the settler, much more efficient. I like permitting the addition of charitable beneficiaries. But by the way, you can't have somebody be able to add a beneficiary um, and have a non-grant or trust. That makes it a grant or trust in itself. The power to make loans is very useful. Here's a sample loan provision. Access on death of the first spouse. You have to think about that. That's why I like the domestic asset protection trust, the hybrid DAPT, and the SPAT. There's some much more information and sample clauses on that. 
We've talked about giving access through loans, charity. You can have a vacation home or even a primary residence, though I don't love that, included in the slab. We're pretty much out of time. Um, let me just kind of wrap up. Spousal Lifetime Access Trusts are the hot ticket. Everyone's talking about them. They're not nearly as simple as, as many people uh, lead others to believe or as clients think. Uh, you need to put a lot of care into them. But the key point of what I was trying to do for the hour we had was say you can take the same concept that wealthier clients are using to save estate tax in the future and safeguard their exemption and apply it for mass affluent clients for asset protection, income tax planning. Instead of doing a simple insurance trust, the SLAT is just a more robust version of the same thing. Why not just do a better trust and save them the cost and hassle of all these other trusts? It's a great way to save and safeguard assets for the future. So hopefully um, I, I've given you some thoughts where you can take this SLAT idea that you're probably doing a lot of and we'll be doing a ton more of as we get towards the end of 2025 and apply it to your more mass affluent clients. Thank you, Martin. One takeaway for me from this talk and in general is it's helpful to look at the planning that wealthier families do to get ideas of your own. Perhaps the implementation and the reason for the planning will be different, but it can be very useful to explore what the richest investors and most sophisticated advisors are suggesting to their clients and figure out how and if it makes sense to implement similar strategies for your own situation. It may be a great way to more effectively protect and grow your assets and in some instances save on taxes as well. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. Also, please be aware that you can follow all my latest content by subscribing to my newsletter. You can email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com with the word newsletter in the subject line, and I will add you to my distribution list. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's a spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.